Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Fearless Questions podcast, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today we are really, really lucky to have Dr. Peter Enns with us. Um, Pete, how you doing? I'm doing great. Fearless questions, huh? Yeah, fearless questions. That's I'm, I like fearless. I, I like even better fearless answers. <laughs> fearless answers. Well, here's the hoping you have some today because I'm great at the <laughs> questions. The answers yeah. not not quite as <laughs> quite as much. But um, yeah. Hey Pete, for people who don't know you, um, which there's plenty of people in the world that obviously do know who you are, but some of my listeners may not. Just cover your ears for a second because it's going to take a second. I mean, PhD from Harvard University. You're the Abram S. Clemens Professor of Biblical Studies at Eastern University. Currently, you've taught undergraduate seminary and doctoral courses all over the place, Princeton, Harvard, Temple, and the uh, you've written maybe 20-some books, um, won awards, and you've got a CV that's nearly 10 pages long that probably requires the Dewey Decimal System to document all of your <laughs> writings, and so uh-huh. I won't take everybody through that, but only to say is you're a... Uh, when it comes to academics, you're uh, you're dialed in there pretty well with the best of the best. And I only say that for people that, while we probably won't stay on that side of the conversation today, I just want them to know that um, you're not just pulling the stuff out of left field, that you, you do know what you're talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, with all that said, kind of your background, just so people know where I heard about you, I'd heard your name kind of kicked around a little bit. One of those deals where it's like, oh, I should probably follow up and read this guy's work and Amazon gives you distractions and I lose my way. It popped, your name <laughs> popped up again when Jody and I were attending the liturgist gathering up in Chicago this past fall. Oh. And, um, but then just a couple months ago, what the impetus was to reach out to you was, um, Nicholas Kristoff was interviewing Tim Keller in the New York Times and he was kind of sharing his wonderings about certain parts of narratives in the Bible and basically asking Tim if he considered himself a proper Christian or not while holding those doubts. And, you know, you people can read it for themselves and you kind of had a little bit of a pushback article and I read this and I'm like, I'm sort of agreeing with what I'm reading, but I'm thinking I'm, I'm a kind of an academically trained apologist, I suppose you could say. Um, and I was like, wow, this guy's just not calling out Tim Keller, but he's just not even afraid to say, Hey Tim, maybe you could do it a little better. And I thought I'm interested in this guy. <laughs> What's, what was that like? Did you get a lot of, uh, well, you might be used to pushback on what you write, but, um, did you get any flack for doing that? Um, I mean, yeah, yes and no. You know, I mean, when you write about God or the Bible, you're going to get pushback from somebody. The people hold their views pretty strongly, as you know, I do too. So yeah, I mean, it's to be expected. Um, you know, uh, Tim's a very uh, popular, uh, you know, uh, preacher and speaker and writer. So he's going to have, I guess, a certain fan base, and I mean that in a in a positive sense, not a negative sense. He's going to have certain followers and. And, um, you know, that's always the case where people like somebody's really helped you and to hear them criticize is not always a positive thing for them. And so they sort of push back. But I mean, it's not offensive to me. It's just it's just part of what you do. If you can't do this, you get to get out of the the God business. You know? (laughs) Yeah, no, I (laughs) that's but I think that, you know, especially these days, it's people are really trying to. That's part of this whole thing for your questions. It sounds like a lot of your writing is, and we're going to get into your latest book here, um, The Sin of Certainty. It's kind of subtitled, Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Our Correct Beliefs. And uh, I like the little quote on the back, too, where it said, "Having why having the right beliefs is not the same as having faith. And um, but So you're addressing this in the book, but uh, you know we do kind of live in a space in society where um, that idea of just having doubts and a lack of certainty does not seem like 
it's very seems acceptable to be on one side of the spectrum or the other, but those folks in the middle kind of get lost sometimes. It seems like. Yeah, because you know we have this black and white view of reality and of the nature of God, and if if anything should be clear, it should be our belief in God. You can't sort of be in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just find that's just not true. I mean, that's not common experience. Uh, uh, people do struggle with beliefs and with the content of what they believe, and and that's uh, you know it's it's normal. It's it's actually biblical and. It's uh, actually actually also spiritually vital and and vitalizing to to understand that part of our faith, not to wallow in in doubting, but not to apologize for it either. Hmm. Well, as we let's just jump into the book a little bit, if you if you don't mind, because um, right. you know you talked about you just brushed by real quickly, you know, common experience, and and that's one of the reasons why. Um, and I've told you this, but I, I'll just say it out loud here is that one of the reasons this was a very um, this became a very personal book for me when I read it. It's a very accessible. First of all, if anybody I gave you all, I told her about your academic credentials. I love that on your website, um, pedens.org or dot com, whichever. You yeah, can, com. OK, we'll put a link on the show at the end. But you've got the the section of books that people don't want to read or these are if you read these books you're weird <laughs> and and, uh, and then you've got your like popular level books like yeah if you read these you're probably normal this is one of those books for the everyday person that they can read um but it was very personal for me because it like really spoke to some of these places of my personal experience of doubts and what do you do with that and how do you um this whole nature of what does god think about you in the midst of it well, how does this kind of work into our personal faith but when it comes to that uh, everyday experience early on in the book if you don't mind just sharing um you talked about an experience on a plane with a movie that kind of sparked this um <laughs> dad do you mind sharing that story real quick yeah i mean it, it's it's sort of it's an illustrative moment I, I wouldn't say that it necessarily sparked things because you know when i finished this book i actually was of taking stock of a few things, just having completed it. And I, I began to realize that I've sort of been writing this book for about 35 years in my head. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I can't think of a thing that sparked it, but this was sort of a moment when I was teaching uh, still in, in seminaries. So this is maybe the mid early 2000s, I'd say. And uh, I was coming home from an academic conference flying cross country and I'd, I was bored of like reading. So I said, you know, what movies are playing back when they still showed movies. They don't <laughs> do that anymore. Right? But um, and there was nothing on that seemed interesting. But this Bridge to Terabithia movie sounded pretty interesting. Never heard of it. Never heard of the book. But um, basically, it's it's a story of, uh, you know, two kids from two different worlds. One a boy who's sort of more in in a fundamentalist world, but still nice, you know, mm-hmm. and then a girl who has just moved into the neighborhood who is totally not that at all, right? Mm-hmm. And how um, she she part of the book in the uh, the movie is about how she experiences the boy. The boy's name is Jesse. How she experiences his uh, life of faith and how he experiences her. Uh, more just sort of freewheeling, loving life, exploring everything, afraid of nothing kind of way. And um, there was one scene that really sort of hit me. They were in the back of the family pickup truck coming back from church, and uh, they're talking about all the hellfire and brimstone preaching. And and uh, the girl, uh, Leslie, her name, she, she said, you know, I just found this fascinating. Jesus is just so interesting. And they got into this little sort of debate about, well, no, Jesus isn't interesting. This is scary. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. If you don't believe in him, you go to hell. And if you don't believe in what the Bible says, you go to hell too. And she said, I seriously don't believe that God sends people to hell. He's too busy running all of this. And the camera pans up to the sky and the, you know, the trees and everything. And, you know, it's, it's a little moment in a Disney movie, but it sort of grabbed me because it was actually conjuring up was probably a deeply held fear of admitting to myself that I act, that's actually the kind of God I believe in. The one who's not concerned about, you know, people not passing theology exams and they wind up going to hell as a result. Mm. But there's, there's something about God that's bigger and more beautiful and more attractive, frankly, more healing rather than retributive, right? Mm. And that was a moment for me sort of like to sort of come to terms with something. And it was, in, in that sense, sort of the beginning of um, – being more conscious of what was going on deep down inside of me and realizing that that created doubts in sort of this nice tight system that I had for thinking that, you know, as a seminary professor, I need to have this nice, tight, unassailable system of doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it's, it's just more complicated than that. And, um, you know, not being terribly comfortable with that thought and yet being also very energized by it that, listen, this is authenticity. And, and, you know, it's about trusting God to see where that's going to go. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned that little word energize. There is that sort of, um, it is this dangerous feeling of excitement sometimes when you, when you kind of, an awakening, I don't know what the right word would be, but I just, I resonate with that, uh, that experience of, hey. Well, I think awakening is a great word. Okay. All right. And it's not condescending, but we do have these aha moments and these awakening moments. Other people call it enlightenment which I know sounds really like arrogant and condescending, but I don't mean it that way at all. It's just like all of a sudden it's like a window opens and there's light pouring into what was a dark room, but you thought it was light, mm. you know, and, and you have to deal with it. And that's just the human experience. We don't have all the answers, but we have to, you know, we have to decide whether we want to accept the invitation to, you know, to, to pass through that door that's open in front of us or not. Yeah. And, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves maybe because this might've been later in the book, but, you know, we talk about an awakening or this like, you know, this light coming in at the same time, um, you know, groups of people we've been a part of or our faith communities or the people we've lived around for them, rather than an awakening, it might seem much more like a, oh, so-and-so now they're, they're going off the reservation, they're backsliding, they've right. gone liberal, whatever the, whatever the accusation may be. And that can be a pretty unsettling uh, piece of this journey as well, can't it? Well, it's, it's, it's a morning kind of moment, you know, where a community that has meant a lot um, and where you fit in very well for, for whatever reason, whatever experience you had, you, you, you're finding it more difficult to sort of stay in that place. And so you start asking questions and sometimes you are ostracized or silenced or ignored uh, because, you know, this part of the point of the book, the sin of certainty is that we're, we're shaped at least in our culture, in American Western culture, we're shaped in a lot of Christian circles to be certain about what you believe and asking questions, introducing doubt is the opposite of having faith. And so if you experience those things, those doubts, you need to keep it quiet. You can't talk to people. You have to fix it quickly and get back to the way things were. And if you have a, a life of faith and a community of faith, church, that more or less buys into that mentality, it's never easy to sort of come clean and to talk about things 
whereas, you know, I mean, I think church should be the place where that actually should happen all the time, you know, quite frankly, but it doesn't. But that's that's part of the culture that we're in. It's sort of a, a black and white, either or, you believe or you don't believe. If you're in the middle, that's as good as unbelief because you're wavering and mm-hmm. you're not solid and you don't have faith and all that kind of stuff. And it's hard for people, you know. Um, and I and I have a lot of conversations with people about this, just online or just in person. And you know, they don't know what to do because their church won't accept them. And the advice I give them is the advice somebody gave me many years ago, which is maybe you should be in a community that values you for who you are, hmm. and not one that is always judging you for, for who you. <laughs> and I, a lot of that just you know comes down to also. You know, forgive the rambling here, but no. I, th- I think another factor involved in this is how, you know, churches sometimes think that they're adequate for addressing everyone at every point in their spiritual journey. Mm. And sometimes they're not, and that's okay, but that's why people leave churches. Mm. You know, and leaving a church is not the worst thing to ever happen to the world. You said, listen, I, I've done that, you know, I, and I've talked to pastors saying, this has been wonderful. I just, here's why I feel I need to leave. And, you know, the last time I did that was about six or seven years ago. And it was a very nice sort of send off. Hmm. You know, it was, there was an understanding about that, but, um, but, you know, if you have the truth and if it's all about holding on to the truth and being certain about the truth, people who question that are a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's a shame. Yeah. You know, you said that, you said, Hey, maybe it's a good idea to go somewhere where people value you for who you are. I think for some people that sounds like a, that sounds like wishful thinking. Like, is there really that kind of place out there? And so I hear you saying, yes, yeah, there might be out there somewhere. Well, I think there are, and and there are different churches and denominations and theological sort of platforms, let's say for people to, to land on. But I found generally speaking, and again, this may be more of a Western problem than anything. I think churches that come out of the so-called modernist fundamentalist controversies of the late 19th and early 20th century mm-hmm. that are biblicistic in orientation. In other words, everything has to be backed up with a Bible verse, and the Bible is absolutely clear. Um, those are the kinds of churches that it's going to be more difficult for people who want to express their spiritual journey as one that asks a lot of hard questions and one that has uh, that is um, very much a part of the world of doubt. Mm-hmm. Other iterations of Christianity are not biblicistic, they're liturgical. Mm-hmm. And there are many out there. I mean, I've been a part of an Episcopal church now for about six or seven years or so. And it's been very healing for me to be a part of a worshiping community that doesn't haggle over things that elsewhere were for people like, this. Is, these are hills to die on. Mm. You know, whether the exodus actually happened exactly the way the Bible says it, things like that. Mm. Um, so they're out there and, and people find, you know, I can't dictate or write a, you know, a, you know, a, a rule book or something for people what they have to do. But there are all sorts of iterations of Christianity within the evangelical world mm. who are asking hard questions. Uh, more independent churches or those tied to more liturgical denominations. Mm. So they're out there. They're actually pretty normal. Mm. <laughs> you know, the, what we're leaving is not necessarily normal. That could be actually abnormal. No, I'm, I'm tracking with this, I guess. And I'm, I'm just processing as we go because, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the common scenarios that you might see playing out that bring people 
you know, that to get to this point, you know, what are those things that you see leading up to people losing the certainty or the comfort within the communities, maybe those proof texting churches or something that, you yeah. that, um, they've been operating in. Um, you know, what do you say to that person? Um, especially cause they're so connected there, you know, even if they've, they're struggling to connect what they hear on Sundays to what they live out during the week, they just have this growing exhaustion from the whole deal. Um, yeah. is it just, I mean, is it as simple as saying, you know, take a courageous step and just step away? Um, and meanwhile, I'm having tomatoes thrown at me over here because I'm apparently walking away from the faith or, you know, well, it's harder if you have a family, first of all, so individuals, but you see, that's just that church is community and people are in churches because there is a value there for them of people that they love and they want to be around that they have a lot of shared thoughts with and shared experiences with. And that's why it's very hard. It's not just like, gee, I disagree. I'm leaving this church. Mm-hmm. It's more, I guess, to a point, a breaking point where I can't do this anymore. I just can't. And people stay for maybe longer than they should, but because of those community ties. I have that same conversation with a lot of people saying, I just, I, I, I can't do this anymore, but I have, you know, a, my wife or husband and my kids. There's something very valuable there. I'm not sure what to do. And, and I say, well, you have to talk about that as a family, but you might need to stay. Mm-hmm that might be the right thing to do at this point in time in your lives. And there's nothing wrong with that. As long as, you know, you maybe lower your expectations about what you're going to get out of church for the sake of your family. Right. <laughs> and that's a hard call. No, I'm totally know? tracking with you. I'm just laughing at like, maybe like the synod meeting or like the, the network guys, we're just going to lower the bar here for people. Right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, because, um, you know, what you used to get out of church, great preaching, great teaching, that's exactly the problem. Yeah. Right? And that's that's what, you know, the evangelical world, this is what church is basically about. It's great teaching, great preaching. That's the goal. Throw in some hymns, maybe some music, and communion once a month or a quarter, whenever they have it. Mm-hmm. Right? So, I mean, this is, that that's, that's what you value, but if those very things that you used to value in a church are now a problem, because actually these aren't great sermons. Yeah. I'm not learning a lot. I have to unlearn things. This is not syncing with me. I'm not making a pronouncement about the nature of the universe. I'm just saying I have a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance right now yeah. between what I'm constantly hearing and what my experiences in life and just frankly, reading the Bible for myself. Mm. I mean, that that's the tipping point for most people. They just really read the Bible and they say, I don't like all this killing. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know? that's does, sort of the thing. It's, it's things like that that just set people off. Well, you know, and you, we talk, and this is, was really interesting to me because, um, you know, you talked about, there was some stories you told about like falling branches and acts of God and this idea that people would just be out. There was a story where people were out jogging in the park, I think nearby to you and a, a storm had happened or something, a branch fell and killed somebody. And you start going through all these scenarios of, you know, oh, if it was one second later, one second earlier, if they tied their shoes instead yeah. of kept running. And it started to introduce these big questions that are really, you know, scary. If it almost gets very overwhelming as you think about the size of the universe and problems of suffering and all these uncontrollable things. And so, and I think people can feel, um, they can feel the foundation shaking. Even when it comes to your family, it's like, Oh, I want to leave, but I don't want my kids to get trapped in the same stuff I did, but I have no idea what that would look like for them. So now there's that's scary. And, um, 
But, you know, a number of times in your book, it's like you were asking those questions, but sort of like a, an apologist would, like, okay, I'm going to come back with some some facts here to alleviate any concerns and convince you that we have a certain answer to this question. Um, mm-hmm. But you kind of moved on and said, it's not that you sidestepped, you know, facts or beliefs that, you know, it's not they weren't important, but you really moved beyond that and started to talk much more about um, trusting as opposed to belief and that they weren't the same thing. And, and that really gets at the thrust of the book, I think. So if you could just maybe, maybe expand on that for a minute. Yeah, I, I mean, it gets to a point where, <clears throat> you know, you, you're posed with an intellectual problem, whatever it is, whether it's the fact that, you know, suffering in the world, you know, why doesn't God show up and do something about it, that kind of thing, which is, you know, a perennial question people have. Um, you know, you, so you have an intellectual problem with the Christian faith, and the response to that isn't always a better intellectual answer that accounts for it and now we're safe and everything's okay you may have to live in perpetual uncertainty about many things Hmm. and when that happens and i think actually if i may i think that's a maturing faith Hmm. when you're willing to live in uncertainty about a good many things and at that point you have to make a decision whether you know this you want to fix this period of uncertainty and come up with just a better kind of certain answer or whether you're going to enter into a relationship with God by faith, which is to say, I'm going to trust God anyway, and I'm going to live into this issue and walk the path as difficult as it might be, as many, many people have done before me. So the issue there becomes, do you trust, you know, in order to, let's say, believe, to have your belief grow, do you trust first or do you have to have the answers before you can proceed with trusting God? Hmm. And I think the second option is never right. I think the first option is always right. Hmm. How's that for being certain? <laughs> yeah, it's, the, the, I'm getting spun around in circles. Um, <laughs> Noah, uh, you know, when you talked about, um, we talk about certainty and all this stuff, but we talked about, I feel like what it gets back to, if we're going to set aside the need for certainty and everything, um, the one thing, at least in my journey, is somebody who kind of did dig into some of these apologetic or just common, common questions that people have. Some ask them in more basic terms. Some get a little more academic and how they define them. But, but in the end, I found myself, I, I really enjoyed it. If I found it helpful, but in the end, I, it didn't support anything for me long term apart from, the one thing for me, at least, that I came back to is I needed to know what is God like? Um, mm-hmm. What is the character of this God that I say that I believe in? Um, and for me, that was like the core conviction. But once I once I kind of came to that core conviction, what is God like? And I'm, I'm kind of assuming that there was a bit of that in there for you. I don't know how or when, but, you know, that that might secure us. But then it kind of launches us into unknown if we really do anchor into this trust of what we think God is like. And we're going to be comfortable, more certainty. That can put us into some pretty uncomfortable spaces into this world, yeah? Well, yeah, because that's life, being uncomfortable. Um, you know, I, I do agree. I mean, we have basic convictions of what God is like. Like, for example, if if we think of God as wise and good and love, which I think are good metaphors we use for talking about God. They make sense to me. They hold true to experience 
um, and they hold true to my reason. I don't mind saying that with what I think, you know, if, if there is a God, what would this God look like? Mm-hmm. And you see this God reflected in the Bible, not on every page. You have diverse portraits of God in the Bible. So this is why the Bible becomes sort of uh, problematic for theology. It doesn't answer all the questions. It raises them because of this, these diverse portraits they have of God, the biblical writers have. But that's part of working through the Bible not as a rule book or a cookbook, but as maybe setting trajectories that become clearer as time goes on. And those those trajectories continue even into the history of the church and the task of doing theology, you know, in the 5th century and 10th century and 15th century and even today, of this continual experience with God in conversation with the voices of the past and conversation with scripture to come up with what is God like. And I don't believe that God is fundamentally vindictive and sort of like a drunk uncle, you have to tiptoe around or else he's <laughs> going to get mad and do something to you. I, I don't think that God exists. I do think God is portrayed that way sometimes in the Bible. Right? So, so you know, it's you come to these convictions and you hold to them and you say, well, how do you know? Are you certain? Well, no, I'm not certain. But I'm pretty comfortable with that way of thinking. And that's what I'm entering into as I walk this path and this journey of faith. And um, that is scary in the sense because you want that grounding. You want to be sure about God. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the way we're sure isn't simply an intellectual process. That's a part of it. But that's sometimes a very small part of it. Sometimes it's experiential and things you can't even really articulate. Mm. You know, And I th- people have stories like that. They just the, – God moments, whatever we want to call them, where, you know – I just I can't really analyze this past about two steps, and then it just sort of ends for me. And and to allow that experience to be formative, instead of saying it has to be analytically apprehensible, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and that's a hard shift for people, especially Western people, especially people who are used to intellectualizing their faith, mm-hmm. which is largely the evangelical and fundamentalist theological system or intellectualizing systems where you have to have answers and things have to make sense. Yeah, no, one of the most powerful, it's a, it's not a long story, but you, you share something about your, your daughter and a story and you have this one moment in the book that I hope people will read. Um, and it's just where God kind of does something for you that you didn't even, that you were looking for trying to do on your own. And then he just provides for you without you doing anything and you know it. But for me, not only was it this cool story, but then hearing you process the, because it's it resonated with my journey my, on my side of this, where it's like I think I have these God moments, and then I, you know, start following up with all the analyzing. Well, I guess it could have just been this, and it was probably yeah. just this, and and you come to this beautiful place where you say, yeah, I went through all that, but then I came back and I thought, but you know what? No, I mean for me, this is this was God intervening. It was a special God moment for me, and I thought that was a really um, giving people permission, helping people give have permission to to own that for themselves. Um, you know, right. I think is it, which I think is what keeps a lot of people, at least in my experience, I don't know about you, but that's what keeps some people from wanting to deal with some of the bigger questions at all, because they don't want to give up that ability to, they feel like to get into the big questions would be able to, to be, to give up this sense of being able to hold on to the mystery of God. And so, well, the mystery is the key word and, and, you know, to, to, uh, to, to bow before the reality of the limits of our analytical abilities, mm-hmm. because if we're talking about God our reasoning has to come up short at some point. Mm. And, you know, I don't say that lightly being a Western educated guy, a type A 
personality of German extraction, for heaven's sake. It, it, it can't get any worse than me right now in terms of a, you know, so and that's a hard thing to sort of let go of to say, listen, my, my ability to think and reason and analyze is very important. It's what makes us human. You know, we're not codfish. On the other hand, we're dealing with God. And, and by definition, see, another word, you know, like you said, wisdom and love and all that, mystery is another word that's become vital to me for, under, for, uh, for accepting the reality of the spiritual realm, let's say, mm-hmm. and how what I see and what I experience, those are parts of reality, but they don't exhaust the nature of reality. I truly and deeply believe that. Mm-hmm. And now, how can I defend it? I can't. I can't defend it. I can just sort of try to live that, and that's sort of a defense. Hmm. Well, you, you might not be able to defend it, but maybe just for that person listening, and, I'm, and this is even sp- speaking to myself, you know, even a couple years ago, that that is attracted to the idea of, okay, yeah, hold on to mystery. But could you say to them, yeah, it, it's it's big, it's mysterious, you have to be comfortable with that, but it's going to be okay? I mean, I, that seems basic to say, but I think there's people that think, is it really going to be okay to not be able to figure it all out if they're used to certainty? Yeah, because, see, once you move past the need to be certain, that's the hurdle, right? Once you, This is a psychological issue. <laughs> you know, it's not a theological issue. It's a psychological issue, and I'm going to say a sociological issue as well because your community. If you're around a community of faith that is, embraces ambiguity mm-hmm. and understands it's not – Let's be as ambiguous as we possibly can, but understands the inevitability of ambiguity in life, mm-hmm. and especially in theology. That question, that, that frightening question becomes less frightening because you're seeing other people embody that. Mm. That's why sometimes leaving a community of faith is a wise thing to do for people. Not always, I'm not telling people, again, to run out of church as quickly as soon as you disagree, but... Mm. If you have fundamental core convictions about the nature of reality and the nature of God that are at odds with churches you go to, where you're not allowed to teach Sunday school anymore, <laughs> that kind of thing, which happens, you know, yeah. or you're told you're sort of a sub-Christian because you have these questions or doubts, or you've come to certain conclusions that are not valued in that community, there's something wrong with you, you're broken, you need to be fixed. Hmm. No, you don't, you're actually normal, and um, get out more often and you'll see that. Well, just to keep this on the um, on the real side of things, in your own journey, um, as you stepped in towards, um, have you stepped in those directions? Like you said, you've been writing this book in your head for 35 years or something. Um, in your own journey, as you began to lean into some of your understandings of scripture and such, you've had the name controvert, the word controversy comes up around your name sometimes, which, <laughs> which is kind of funny, but. No, I didn't do that. No, well, but does it feel funny to be someone who has had controversy going on around them? What? Um, yeah. And I mean this specifically, I mean, going back, I'm sure there's been other things with some of your writing, but you know, you used to be, you used to be teaching at Westminster Theological Seminary um, back in the day. And, mm-hmm. and you, I don't know how that went down, but you start living out this space you're talking about here. And all of a sudden it makes other people really uncomfortable where they're re- ready to, I don't know, burn you at the stake or just give you the boot. How that, but what was that journey like? Well, I mean, that was, um, I, there isn't a single word to describe. I can say it was difficult, but more in retrospect. Okay. When you're in the middle of it and – well, let me put it this way. If, and this isn't just um, 
uh, a property of what you might call fundamentalist neo-Calvinists. This is something that you see in a lot of iterations of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism. So this isn't just Westminster. Okay. But when you have a way of expressing the Christian faith that is very defensive, um, you're constantly in some sort of a struggle. You're constantly in some sort of a fight. And as I was in that process for several years, that eventually um, resulted in my resigning from the school in 2008, which I talk about in the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was sort of like a normal thing. You just always fight, right? Mm-hmm. And it was only after leaving it and after about a year or two reflecting on it and saying to myself, that was screwed up. <laughs> that was majorly screwed up. I mean, it's like you're not really following Jesus unless you're going after other people. Mm-hmm. And um, I know I say that not because I'm not just simply generalizing my own experience, but this is sort of what that tradition does. And that's it's known for that. It's it's not a secret. In fact, they prize it. To be belligerent is 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 to be is is to be a faithful follower of Jesus, to protect doctrine of which you are certain, right? So, you know, when I was, you know, you ask how was that? It was difficult because, you know, I was fighting for my life, so to speak, for several years, but that's just what you do in that setting. It wasn't until afterwards where I saw you don't need to live that way, hmm. you know. Yeah, and I and I think I wanted to just bring it up because you know, as I know, there's people that listen to this kind of a conversation, and you know, maybe they've been having this um, discomfort or this, you know, increase of angst, sort of about the space they're operating in, wanting to be able to step away from some of the, wanting to move towards mystery because the certainty has not been working for them. They can't hold it together with the reality any longer. But they don't want to let go of God either. Um, right. Not even that they just don't want to, but they don't feel like they can because it, they they genuinely have not dismissed God, but they just right. can't make sense of the framework that has been explained to them. And right, um, right, that there are real consequences. I mean, there is in life there is a there's hard stuff that comes out of it because I I was um, you know especially the second half of the book you did spend a number of a bit, good bit of time talking about Job. Um, and even in some just regular life stuff where there's hard stuff, this is not just this journey towards maturity and all this is not, um, you know, it's not as simple as just get the, okay, this is Pete's got the new formula. Let's pick up Pete's formula and, right. you know, we'll create the new Calvinist kind of thing or something. But, um, right. uh, you know, after, let's say this way, after talking about Joe for a little while, you know, you mentioned that the theory of what God is supposed to act like was precisely Job's problem. And, um, I yeah. just thought that was really profound. Um, in terms, and could you just help us understand that? Just, I know it might be doubling up a little bit, but someone says, "Oh, I've read Job's story." What do you mean by that? That understanding the theory of what God's supposed to be like was actually part of his problem. Yeah, well, um, you know, briefly put, you know, Job is suffering, and he's got his friends, and they are his friends. I'm sure they're very good people, and they basically <laughs> say, you know. After being silent for what seven days or something, they they say, "Job, listen, man, you got sin in your life, Un- unrepentant sin in your life. You did something to deserve this." And Job says, "I didn't do anything." And Job's friends pretty much they, it's it's a back and forth for whatever thirty chapters of you must have done something. And Job is saying, "I didn't." And they said, "Yeah, you did. You must have." And Job said, "But I didn't." 
Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. It's just back and forth. And yeah, a couple times Job sort of says, well, maybe I did this. I'd like to know what I did. Wait a minute. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And the, the issue there between the friends is a view about maybe what God is like. And Job's friends are, let's say, good biblical Israelites because they understand from places like Psalm 1 or the book of Deuteronomy is really good at this, that actions have consequences. Mm. So if you're suffering a consequence, it must have been because of an action. Mm. You're suffering, Job, therefore you must have done something to elicit that suffering. So in other words, they're being good, quote, biblical Israelites at that point. And they're sort of, they're, they're towing, let's say, the party line that you do find in places in the Bible. But Job, at the end of the day, is vindicated when God, you know, reveals himself to Job in a whirlwind. They go back and forth in a rather complicated sort of argument. But then at the end, uh, you know, God says to one of Job's friends, he says, you know, um, you're wrong. You have not spoken of me rightly as my servant Job has. Hmm. So it's interesting that, you know, the book of Job seems to be challenging this, let's say, simple cause and effect, black and white view of the nature of God, saying it's more complicated than that. Hmm. And when bad things happen to you, it's not because you did something wrong and God is punishing you. Sometimes you just don't know. Hmm. And that's very much like lament psalms or like the book of Ecclesiastes and some things in the prophets. You You see that what theologian Walter Brueggemann calls the counter-testimony of Scripture. You have the main testimony where, listen, if you do this, you're going to get punished. If you do that, you're going to be blessed. Mm -hmm. That's the main testimony. And look how good things are if you disobey God. The counter-testimony, like Job and others, is like, yeah, it doesn't work that way all the time, does it? Mm. And you've got that dialogue in the Bible itself, which I think is one of the most liberating and fascinating things you could even say about the Old Testament. It's got an internal dialogue going on. Mm. Fascinating. Well, and that that counter-testimony you're talking about seems to resonate, at least in my own journey, it would re it resonates deeply with the private struggles. seems like in the public forums, you know, the, the main narrative is easier to celebrate and talk about, but... The discomfort of those private, you know, mm -hmm. struggles um, becomes much more real, which which always took me and I think others I've encountered. It takes you towards the whole anxiety, the worry stuff, because right. it becomes a very private struggle. It's like this vortex yeah. you're getting sucked down in. And honestly, in your book, I, I mean, it. Uh, well, I wrote "Holy Schnikes" as a quote in my book, which I mean, I really, which is why I say on the air instead of saying shit. But it, I just wrote it that said. <laughs> You know, and it, it was basically, it was a simple line where it said, belief leaves room for worry and truth explodes it. And I just mm -hmm. thought, and I've come to believe. Trust. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was, it yeah. really is. And, and this is one of the reasons if someone says, why should I read this book? It's like, look, this concept of moving from just belief towards actual putting your trust in God is they, that line for me captured it. It's like, you want to know why you're in all this worry and everything is because you keep going through the facts. You're trying to measure them and. And weigh yeah. it out constantly as opposed to that's why that issue at the beginning of what is God really like? I need to know what he's really like if I'm going to put my trust in him. If there's any good news that I can put my trust in him and be okay, these right. are, these are things I need to know. So, yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't work that way. It's, it's a matter of just sort of diving in and, um, yeah. And, and if you're raised as a Christian, 
to have to have the answers ironed out mm-hmm. that creates faith crises where they don't have to be if if you're if you're sort of encouraged and supported in a journey of faith where you're just not sure at even at a young age even children because children have doubts too all my children when they were young had doubts because of what they were being taught in Sunday school class that made no sense to them. Mm. You know, why does God drown the Egyptians? Why does God drown everybody? What is it with water? <laughs> you know, wh- why did, what kind of a God is this? I mean, these are questions that children raise too. And to sort of create a culture where part of the expression and the embodiment of the Christian faith is to be honest about that kind of stuff, just like biblical writers were honest about that stuff. I'm sorry, that would go a long way. Yeah. That would help a lot of We'll have to have like an adolescent counselor that specializes in the trauma of flannel graph or something. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably a market for that out there. But But who could get them? Who would sign up? And they don't want other people to know they're signing up. Oh, and you see, it's it's worse in this sense because, okay, kids are taught a simplistic way of thinking, which sort of works for them for a certain amount of time. They start having doubts. They can't talk about it. They leave the faith when they're 15. Yeah. Right? So that happens. But the thing is that, it's even worse when the, let's say, childish way in which children are taught about the faith, when that doesn't grow up along with those people. So, and, and you know, one of my professors, John Levinson at Harvard, he would say this. I've read it in C.S. Lewis. It's the same idea where what is it about people and their religious faith? When they're adults, they no longer have a childish view of math mm-hmm. or of history or of weather. But for some reason, their faith never grows up intellectually with being an adult. You're supposed to stay at that childlike kind of state where life is very simple. And that's, you know, you see, how do you correct that? Hmm. Uh, You have to do it differently at home and in churches, which means you have to be in part of communities that support that kind of, let's say, an exploratory life of faith. Hmm. That's why some iterations of the Christian faith, some whether denominations or movements, are it's more difficult to do that in some than in others. Yeah, and well, people have to decide what they want to do. Yeah, and it's and the funny thing for me was always you know just because you know you need as you mature you you find yourself needing more space. Um, it doesn't mean that you dismiss all the you know some of the tradition I came from. I learned so much Bible. I mean, right. I have so many facts that Absolutely. that are helpful and serve me well. But when that was the end of the conversation, it became very um, well. Jeff, here's something else that comes up a lot, right? People say, "Listen, what you're telling me about the Bible, I I like it. It makes sense to me. It's blowing me away." But here's the hard part. I used to understand this passage or this story in a certain way years ago, and I feel like God was close to me during those times. You tell me that was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I jump up and down and say, absolutely not. God meets us where we are. Right. And it, it, that's a great point, actually, to illustrate that you don't need theological and intellectual precision to meet God. God meets us where we are. But take that – so take that and embrace that as a legitimate stage of faith that you were on. But that doesn't mean God won't meet you elsewhere and differently and in maybe less easily perceptible ways. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I teach at a Christian college, Eastern University, wonderful place. And, uh, you know, a lot of students, not, not all of them, but a certain, you know, a core number of students come from what I would say are fairly conservative backgrounds, but they're very inquisitive and they want to, they want to talk about things. And so we do, and they wind up coming to conclusions that were not, would not necessarily be supported by a pastor or by a youth pastor. And they get mad at their church. Mm. They lied to me all those years. And I said, they didn't lie to you. They mm. expressed things that they understood the way they understood them. And God was a part of your life there. Never turn your back on that. Don't mm. judge them. It is what it is. But for whatever reason, you are now in a place where you have to decide how is your journey going to continue. And mm. it's probably not going to be by going backwards. You're going to have to keep going forward. And you're going to have to bring that life that you've had along with you and not simply turn your back on it and say it was a lie. Yeah. That's that's a bit childish, too. Yeah, that's a good word. I, I think we could all stand to see more of that as people do move into spaces of mystery, and but not to dismiss the people. Not just move beyond it, but yeah, not dismiss the people as right. if they're less than or something because right, they're exactly. not the same place as you. That's a, that's a good word. Well, um, well, P, as we kind of get towards the end here, one of the things I always ask people is with Fear's questions, you know, what what are the questions you wish people were asking more? Is there anything comes to mind? Oh, wow. Well, I think when I was in, I remember this moment, I was in graduate school having lunch with one of my professors, and we were talking about what we're doing there in graduate school. And I sort of said, you know what, the reason I'm doing this is because I just have this question I want to have answered. And he goes, what is it? And I said, well, what is the Bible anyway? Hmm. And the follow-up question, and what do you do with it? And he sort of joked with me, he said, well, I'm glad you have your sight set low. Um, but, you know, that's, see, that's sort of, I, I wish more people would ask that question or at least understand the value of those questions. It's okay to say, you know, what is the Bible? What, what are we doing with it? Why are these stories here? What's the purpose of them? What are they trying to do to us or for us or with us? Um, you know, is it a rule book? Is it sort of a field guide owner's manual to the Christian life? Is it meant to inspire us? Is it um, meant to be historically accurate? Is it meant to be scientifically accurate? Uh, you know, what is it? And that question is, in my experience, the more you read the Bible, the more open-ended that question becomes. Mm. And allowing that question to be open-ended, what is the Bible? What do I do with it? Something I think very healthy happens, which may be something that people disagree with or it may be hard for them to hear, but what it does is it actually decenters the Bible in the life of Christian faith. The Bible is not the center. God is the center of our faith. So you're just kind of the pulling Bible the pin on that witness. grenade and throwing it in here at the end, aren't you? Yeah, well, you know what? But seriously, I think <laughs> I to me that is an important question to ask because the Bible bears witness to God. The Bible is in itself it, – the Bible doesn't bear witness to itself. It's always pointing outside. And I think the more we struggle with the Bible, the more we realize that, saying, yeah, this is, there's something happening here that is pointing away from itself towards something else. Hmm. That's That conversation is such an interesting one for me and so powerful because um, when you start to feel – it's one of the more unsettling questions that you can start to ask yourself about, you know, what is the nature of, of – uh, you know, what is the nature of scripture and all that? Um, yeah. And I've heard one of, you know, a 
fairly popular author and speaker say when people start arguing about inerrancy and all these things, he always says, no, it's better than that. And that, yeah. that, that always, I'm like, what do you mean it's better than that? What do you, how could it get better than being perfect? You know? And so, um, and the idea of it being better than what people that are protect that are so caught up in that piece of it, that it's actually much better than that is, a. I do hope people hear your question and, and lean into that because that's a space that will really, um, bring them into some freedom i think i hope so yeah well pete look i you know i i um we talk about people's books and things sometimes in their work but um just for my listeners sake and i think i already told you but um it's rare that i read a book that you know it's not i can't say that i like cried through or this or that there was a couple points where i was like wow i could feel the the heartstrings being touched but literally when i finished your book i closed my eyes and it was like Earlier on in my marriage, Joe and I went through a tough spot where we went, we had these dear friends, marriage coaches that just became our dear friends as well. And it was one of the first places where we'd sit and talk for like two or three hours. And then when it was over, you know, we'd get up and my friend would just give me this big hug. And I'm like, what I hear today, I don't know so many things, but what I know is, is that there's something precious going on here. And when I finished your book, I just closed my eyes. I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to give this guy a hug. Like, <laughs> that was a precious, precious story of, um, of what it, what trust looks like and the nature of trust in our faith and um, beyond just belief is uh, it's a paradigm shift that I think will set a lot of people free if they, if they're willing to, to walk in that direction. So just thank you so much for, thank you for putting that into the world. It's very, very, very meaningful for people. Thank you. Yeah. And so, and Pete, thanks for your time. I I really appreciate that as well. And um, you know, if there's ever anything we can do for you, if we can get you back on the air sometime, we'll, we'll obviously cherish that as well. So, Sounds good to me. All right. All right. Thanks, Pete, very much for your time. We'll talk to you later. See you. All right. Bye-bye.